Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Uh, thank you for watching. I'm excited about the episode today. I, you know, I always have this intuition when uh, before an episode, just kind of like the feeling of how it will go. And I, I kind of felt like whatever was going to happen was going to uh, take its own path. And it, and it really did. Uh, today on the show is Richard Grannon. He's an entrepreneur. He's a best-selling author. He's a performance coach. And he also has an amazing YouTube channel, which is how I know him. Over 200 million views on his channel. He talks about personality disorder, narcissism. It's very educational. Today's show went from, of course, personality disorder, which in and of itself was took an interesting direction. Of course, people want to villainize a narcissist so much, but at the end of the day, the conversation had a lot to do with the other side of it, which is codependency and how it's no angel either. I think that's an important conversation to have. Uh, but then from there, we led into philosophizing, which is something I just truly love to do. So we talked about, you know, kind of the masculine feminine. We talked about morality and just essentially what we really distilled it down to or what he distilled it down to was that these these certain topics that we got onto are really more of a fundamental change from a macro perspective of what we need in in society. I had such a good time on the conversation with Richard. I hope you like it. Uh, please hit subscribe and the bell for notifications. And as always, I love reading your comments. So let me know what you think. Why is it that you have to actually have the experience to know like what a narcissist is? It feels like that's true. I don't know if you think that's true, but it feels true to me. People find me at three o'clock in the morning with Google search terms like, why is my boyfriend so horrible? Or why is my girlfriend lack any human empathy whatsoever? So it's usually not the result of like a happy scenario that people come across my stuff. Is that the way that it has to go to learn the lesson? Or are we capable of of knowing of being able to see this kind of person coming like can we save ourselves from this abuse maybe after a couple of goes if you're really sick of it but that's the abuse you see what i'm saying like yeah. your videos at 3 a.m or at any time of the day mm. are because you have experienced something that doesn't feel right and then you keep chasing the rabbit down the hole until you go, oh, my God, that's my life. Yeah, well, no, nobody's going to want to learn like about complicated psychiatric diagnoses unless they're really motivated to. I guess if you wanted to be a psychiatrist, it might be the money that motivates you or it could be the pain of just despair and heartache that motivates you. So, yeah, usually it's only this way. I, I'd like to be able to create a situation maybe in the future where we could teach kids maybe in secondary school age, 15, 16, about emotionally abusive relationships to, to help them avoid it. But um, yeah, for now, I, I think this is about as good as it gets. It's definitely educational once you've had the experience, but it's the, you know, but the experience is so difficult in and of itself. What is it that attracts someone? Like, what is it that attracts one person to a narcissist? Or what is it that attracts a, a narcissist to someone? Like, or what is that dynamic? What is that magic potion that attracts the two together? Uh, they they can have something. You know, they might be physically beautiful or intellectually amazing or very skilled or very creative at something, or at least they do a good job of convincing you that they are. Um when I used to coach people, which I haven't done for a couple of years, but the majority of people I found when I was coaching them were usually at some sort of a crossroads or a crisis in their lives. So they weren't 
When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra, one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul, to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voyantbydanica.com. Usually comfortable when they began the narcissistically abusive relationship. They were in some ways isolated from friends or family. Maybe they started in a new city or a new country and they were a little bit lonely and they were craving intimacy as as we all crave we all want to be seen we all want companionship and to be loved and and to connect um and so you know uh, it's it's from where i'm sat after you know like it's a decade now of looking at this i'm not surprised that people get into narcissistically abusive relationships at all i wouldn't pathologize people who get into narcissistically abusive relationships or say there's something intrinsically wrong with them um these people are a sort of a type of psychopath they're moral degenerates and they don't care about hurting others in order to get what they want so it's like being the victim of a crime in a way so is anyone safe from them or is meaning like is there are they just always attracted to let's say classically like an empath or somebody very empathic that um you know will take care of all of their needs because a narcissist has endless needs um or is it or is, is is everyone fair game for them for the most part? Does a narcissist end up with a narcissist very often? I mean, it seems like that happens from time to time. I don't think everybody's equally vulnerable. I think um, if you're stable, um, and I don't mean to suggest that people who get involved with narcissists are mentally unstable, but if your lifestyle is stable, if you're emotionally regulated, if there aren't massive gaps in your therapeutic process or your emotional maturation that have not yet been filled in, and I mean massive gaps, then you wouldn't you wouldn't fall for it. It's always a con. And uh, mm. the target needs to want to believe. They have to want to believe. So no, a lot of people won't put up with it and they won't end up with a narcissistically abusive uh, partner. So no, not everybody is, is up for it. Um, very frequently, you're right. A lot of people who are very overgiving, codependent, fawn responder types, as defined by mm. Pete Walker uh, out there in San Francisco, a psychotherapist called Pete Walker. He calls it the fawn response. So somebody is very, very suppl supplicatory and submissive and fawning and people-pleasing, then that can be a common combination because that people-pleaser will probably have got that from childhood, probably from a dominating, demanding mother or a very emotionally distant father, and then they'll play that relationship out again in adulthood. But not always, not always. We shouldn't, you know, I've got to be careful not to encourage people to make simple models of this because it's not a, it's not a very simple situation. 
what is it that creates it? Cause it's interesting. It always, it's like, I find this, I, I contemplate a lot of things about reality and one of like, one of which is, are we a simulation? And it sure sometimes feels like it when you think about the pattern of a narcissist, because they don't know they are most of the time, but they're all the same. They might express slightly different through being like covert or overt, but generally speaking, you're like, oh, wow, there it is. Yep. That's why you can look at the top 10, you know, hit list of what to look out for and they fall into it. So, but what is it that actually um, creates this personality disorder within someone? Um, the model that I worked from that I came up with uh back in 2015 as a, as a reasonably good working model is that the narcissist is raised in an environment where they're split between two polarities of delusion. So they'll be told by parents who are traumatized and personality disordered, who engage in something called splitting where mm -hmm. a person is split off into entirely good or entirely bad parts. And they do that with the, the narcissist to be, so the child is trapped between two pillars. One pillar says you're the worst of the worst. You're demonic. And the other pillar says you're the best of the best and you're angelic. Of course, neither is true. They're a child. They're not demons or angels. In the, the demonic pillar, nothing you ever do is good enough. You can't do right for doing wrong. And in the angelic pillar, everything you do is right, no matter how awful it is, will always be on your side. The child is not receiving any authentic love. They're never seen. They're objectified. They're instrumentalized and they're trapped and they're pulled apart between these two poles. Of course, they gravitate to the pole that hurts them the least, that causes them the least sh uh, shame and um, desire to self-negate, which is the angelic one. So nothing mm -hmm. I do is ever wrong. Nothing I do is ever wrong, but they're split. So both these are delusional. So the way to understand the narcissist is a highly traumatized child who lives in a perpetual break from reality in childhood. And instead of recovering from it, they just live inside of that psychotic break. They create their own uh, environment that keeps them broken. Effectively, they, they remain on they walk on broken legs for the rest of their lives. My understanding of, of the narcissist is generally that um, a lot more towards the D demon side the nothing that they do is right and that um you know they end up having to go they have so much shame that they create this facade so that they can feel better about themselves but really they hate themselves because they've been taught nothing's ever good enough um what is it what is that other side that's that's where either a parent an adult or an institution effectively spoils them effectively tells them that they're wonderful and they're amazing our views around childhood trauma are rigid um honestly like generally speaking within our trauma within our culture um between america canada and the united kingdom so we think of childhood trauma as just abuse it's just abuse but mm -hmm. spoiling is also abuse putting mm -hmm. children on pedestals is also a form of abuse because they're no longer a child they're now objectified and what's really happening when we spoil a child is it's not about the child, it's about us. So it's a narcissistic um, way of relating to children. It's really controversial area, this. Like, it really upsets people. Like, I love spoiling children. I love spoiling my nieces and nephews. And in, in the case of my narcissistic ex-husband, he wasn't spoiled at all. It's false. Something, somewhere, somebody taught them that they were entitled to a special level of attention 
and a special level of treatment that nobody else was was treated to. It's very common, even in people who seem to have led um, lives of what externally and objectively look like just endless abuse. It's there. It's there. And we as outsiders will not get access to that information. So you can't say, but I asked my ex-husband and he wasn't spoiled. He told me he wasn't spoiled. He's not going to tell you. Your ex-wife isn't going to tell you. Your mother-in-law isn't going to tell you. Somebody somewhere gave that child the idea that they were very, very special. And it's usually performative. It's not It's not you, Danica, if you're, if you're a small girl. You, Danica, are very um, wonderful because you're you. You're just you're just a great kid and I love you. And that's it. No, it's you, Danica, are a great piano player or you're very pretty or you're just a genius at maths. And through your skill and your ability, you make me look good. You make mummy look good. You make daddy look good and feel good. So the child learns to love themselves the way the parent loves them, loves them. The parent doesn't love them. They only offer them this cheap adulation when they're receiving Mm -hmm. narcissistic supply from them. So that's typically how that plays out. You just said cheap love that's essentially not authentic and it's only conditional because it's how they make them feel, which feels kind of codependent at the same time. Um, But can a, can a narcissistic parent, does a narcissistic parent always, is it, do you need a narcissistic parent to create a narcissistic child? There's no such thing as a a narcissist who isn't codependent. It's not here are the narcissists and here are the codependents. That's not how it works. Kind because of the same. They're the same. They're on the same spectrum. It's just, yeah. are you abusing and predatory to force love from people? Or are you servile and a martyr to to force love from people? So we codependents are no walk in the park either. We're right. not we're right. not wonderful either. We're also highly manipulative and we're raised in very different environments. Uh, sorry, very similar environments. Mm-hmm. It's just that we choose a different path. It's a different survival modality. Does the choice in your path towards narcissism or codependency depend on that sort of um, you're never good enough makes maybe a narcissist versus you are a really good race car driver. So I choose this sort of. Who who is a really good race car driver? Who? Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. God, sometimes I sucked, but (laughs) naming naming no names. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) so between those uh, poles, the polarities I laid out, maybe one is 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 given more pressure than the other. And commonly, when that happens, we would say, "Oh, this his two children and raised by the same parents in the same environment." The daughter's the black sheep. Nothing she ever does is good enough, no matter what she does. And the son is the golden Mm -hmm. child, or vice versa. The genders can reverse. It doesn't really matter. Um, The the golden child can't do do wrong for doing right. Everything he does is perfect. So Mm -hmm. so that that can be a factor. There are different hypotheses out there that I've looked at that I think are interesting. I don't need to know them. The codependent tries to be a narcissist. They attempt that, but somebody crushes it, somebody crushes it out of them. So you have to be a little bit indulged and a little bit spoiled to develop that narcissistic shell. Because if the parent really, do, or the institution you're raised in really doesn't want to see that there, they can beat it out of you. But the theory is, it's not my theory, it's by far smarter people than, than me, far more qualified people than me. Their idea is that that everybody attempts narcissism. 
as a delusional role play as an infantile way of thinking your way out of the problem but it can it can it can fail so you i remembered your earlier question does it only narcissistic parents that create narcissistic children Mm -hmm. no but you have to so there's the there's there's a personality called uh narcissistic personality disorder then we on the internet all go on about narcissism which really confuses things narcissistic personality disorder is a clinical entity it's pretty easy to detect pretty easy to define impossible to cure my humble opinion um and then what you have is a narcissistic style so the child has to have been parented narcissistically but that doesn't mean that the parent was a full-blown clinical narcissist they could have just been an addict an alcoholic um They may have been borderline. They may have, who knows, who knows, but they've not. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code Somnium to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. Children need a lot. I mean, that's just how they're made. And they, they need a lot of a genuine care and attention and they need to feel present. Now, if I imagine I'm just very sick, forget drugs, alcohol or personality disorder. Imagine I'm chronically ill and in pain all the time. I just, I don't have it, mate. I'm sorry. I can't give you what I don't have. It's so fascinating to understand that like the while there is polarities, it's part of the same whole and it's really just your choice of expression. So I think it's important to understand because if this is resonating with a lot of people, a lot of times you are probably more on the codependent side and you're really curious about this personality disorder called narcissism or variations of it. So what is so wrong with codependency? Basically saying that narcissism is bad but so does codependency. What is the abuse of codependency? People like some simpler dichotomy. So we could create one. I've just thought for you now, uh, you could broadly say that narcissism hurts other people and broadly say that codependency hurts the codependent. So they're both maladaptive, but the cost could be outward to the environment or inward, but they're both maladaptive. Mm-hmm. Codependency is originally a ter- it's, it's non-clinical. The clinical, the closest clinical entity we have is dependent personality disorder. But codependency, we all know kind of roughly what it means, but it actually meant somebody who is an enabling, an enabler of an alcoholic. Um, then there were some American ladies in the 80s who wrote three big best-selling books. I think one of them was called Women Who Love Too Much. And all three of them spoke about codependency from the point of view of women who stay, largely women, but men as well, who stayed in abusive relationships. And that was called being a codependent. I just mm-hmm. wrote a book called The Cult of One. Hey, um, And I, I redefined it back to the original Narcissus myth. So Narcissus is a Greek mythology. He was a beautiful Greek hunter who everybody loved, but he refused everybody. But his counterpart in Ovid's version of this myth was called Echo. She was a wood nymph and she lost her voice. She was cursed by uh, the queen of the gods as a punishment. So she could only echo the last three words that somebody spoke to her. She could no longer speak for herself. So I set up like a a paradigm that was you have narcissism, which is toxically yang, and then 
echo codependency, which is toxically yin. They're always on. They're always talking. It's all about them. That's toxic. We're always off. We're always listening. And it's all about others. That's toxic. This is more toxic for the environment. This is more toxic for us. But we do also manipulate people. We do also guilt trip people. We're ostentatiously mm. self-sacrificing and it pushes people to do things that they that they wouldn't otherwise do. Plus the sins of the codependent, now that we're on this, is we become bitter. Because of course, if you give too much and you say that yes to things you don't want to do, you're going to get cranky and bitter because we're hoping, like little children, instead mm-hmm. of saying, like you to do this for me in, in reciprocation thing and expect nothing. What we do is we hope, we hope, and we don't say what we want. You're doing things, hoping for a reaction. You're hoping to get something in return, like even just a thank you. You're the best, or I appreciate that, or you're so sweet, or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and also on top of that is a like a deeper hurt in the manipulation that you could try and achieve as a codependent is that. However you feel about me is how I feel about me. Yes. And that makes you do things to try and, you know, feel better. But if, but it's fleeting because it's inconsistent because it's not you. So yeah, that makes perfect sense that the narcissist will essentially hurt outside of them more than a codependent, a codependent continues to abandon themselves over and over again and what they really want. And that's what makes them not real either to some degrees, because, you know, like, I don't know if this is something you struggle with, but I remember starting to ask myself the question, what do I want to do today? Like, what would make me happy today? And you like, don't have an answer at first. You're like, I don't know, whatever you want to (laughs) do. I want to serve my master today. That's what I want to do because I'm a slave. Yeah, no, there's there's what you just said is interesting in it, and it points back to this key issue with the codependency and the narcissism. However you feel about me is however I'm going to feel about me. This mm-hmm. is because codependency, echo codependency, we draw all of our sense of self from others, which is kind of weird. It's parasitic, and we're not really being ourselves. We're showing up, but we're not there we're haunting our own lives is also codependent because all of their sense of self comes from others the narcissist and codependent were not allowed to develop a real authentic self in childhood it was simply verboten so they never learn how to do it they don't know how to access it the narcissist also is in many ways empty everything they do is for the reactions they can garner from other people this is called narcissistic supply everything they do is for narcissistic supply they run out of that and they experience a kind of death. They go into real critical uh, uh, collapse if they run out of that. What is an a codependent death? Is there an equal and opposite codependent death that they experience? We're more resilient. We're much more resilient in that regard because, so like I said to you, like the false dichotomy, um, we love creating twos. We have like a two-party system and there's two wings on a bird and we have two eyes and we have two hands. We're obsessed. I'm sure if we had three hands, we'd make everything into threes. So we go, here it is. Here's the issue on one side and here's the issue on the other. So I've drawn this comparison between narcissists and codependents. Here's a pretty critical issue and difference for mental health. And this is why codependency isn't a clinical entity. We're not mad. <laughs> We're, we're neurotic. 
we're neurotic, but not psychotic. We're not psychotic. They're psychotic because they have a they have they have a break with reality. They cannot access reality un, untainted. We can. Codependents are pretty realistic. They can see other people. Narcissists can't. Codependents don't see themselves very well. Narcissists see the codependent usually better than they see themselves because there's not much there to see. But our connection with reality is much better. I've heard it argued that we have a kind of codependent supply, which is the need to serve others. But I've never seen a codependent. That doesn't happen. So the emotional dysregulation, I can say with certainty, you show me a person who's been diagnosed like clinically by a clinician with narcissistic personality disorder. That's a very emotionally dysregulated person. You show me somebody who's a codependent, they'll be somewhere on a sliding scale of depression and anxiety, <laughs> but they're not, they're not jumping out of their skin um, with, with real internal suffering, typically, not typically. And, and if they are, it's not because of the codependency. Yeah. I'm really fascinated about this, this conversation. I, I thought of all, all the questions I wanted to ask and I didn't see this coming to like speak so much about the codependent, but I think it's only fair. I think it's only fair to understand not only what, what it is that, um, you know, what attracts a narcissist to some degree, but also that it's just, isn't it, this isn't a, a villainization game of like, oh, they are the only bad ones. It's trying to understand how to heal so that these things don't exist anymore. What is it that needs to be healed the most? Like how, what is like a macro solution for this? Um, My solution, um, as I say, this is 10 years of just trying to answer the question, how do I get myself out of this? And how do I get my clients out? out My clients, the people who follow my material, my readers, how do I get everybody out of this? What do we do? If you start teaching self-assertiveness and boundaries, you're creating more neurosis. And what I've noticed when people do self-assertiveness courses and boundary setting courses, it just makes them belligerent and confrontational and false. And I'm like, this is, that's not it. So I took it all the way down to, I think the self, and I met somebody who was narcissistically abusive. First of all, I wouldn't be very impressed by them. I wouldn't be so naive and impressionable as to believe their story of who they were. Second of all, so I wouldn't get involved with them. I'd just be like, all right, mate, nice story. See you later. Second of all, I wouldn't get involved with them. Third of all, I wouldn't be in a mad rush to fuse and merge with them if I had a self. Because if I have a self and I have wants and I have value system and I have a morality, morality is an important issue that we have to cover at some point. It's essential for recovery and to make sure this doesn't happen again. And I have a philosophy of life and it's mine. I'm not going to get with people like this. And if somebody slips past the guard and gets in, I won't stay with them. And if I'm all the way in with somebody, like somehow I just fall asleep for three years and I get married and have kids with somebody and I am still, and I'm that much backed in into the corner in a battle and I've got all of that to deal with to get out, how am I going to be able to do it? I must have a functioning self. It's the only way. So the good news is if people come to me now with uh, the issue of codependency, having been in a narcissistic abusive relationship, I'm like, hey, I'm not only going to get you over this relationship, make sure it never happens again, but I believe I can help. If I can take you on the same path I walked down, I can put you back to life because you're not living and you never were. Yeah. 
So you'll actually yeah. enjoy a quality of life that you never had before because you weren't a person before. So then you move. Well, you aren't. Yeah. You don't know who you were because no. you you don't know you. So how do you make you happy if you don't even know you? You mentioned a word that I'm really curious what it means. Get past the guard. You said if they get past the guard, what is the guard? Uh, we all have boundaries, or we should do, and those boundaries are based on filters. Um, and every once in a while, somebody will get past your filters and, and your perceptual boundaries, your moral boundaries of what you think is acceptable. Um, and that's normal. The problem I found with codependence is we don't have good boundaries. We're either very intimate and close or the person's a stranger. And I was like, wow, that's weird. I, I figured that out one day with my with one of my clients. We were laughing about mm. it. Um mm -hmm. She didn't even really speak good English. So we would do therapy and like broken English. And uh, I was like, oh, the way you are is you're not a house with a garden path and a gate and a road. You're just a bedroom. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, normally someone, op they say, hi, can I come in? Then you open the gate, they walk up the path, then they open the door, then they go in the living room and then maybe they get to go upstairs and then maybe they go in the bedroom, but that's not happening. There's just bedroom. There's no gate. There's no door. There's no nothing. You have a binary uh, state with your boundaries. Someone I don't know, someone I'm literally doing the most physically intimate things possible with total boundary lessness. And people who live on a sliding scale of that, even if it's not as severe as that case, you can see right off the bat where that's a problem. Like there's, you, you can't live like that. You have to have multiple degrees of boundaries and everybody's experienced that. You've got a friend who's a good friend when they're out there orbiting out there, but you bring them into a closer orbit, doesn't work. That doesn't mean they're a bad friend and you should get rid of them. That just means they stay in that place where they were before. That's where you keep them. That's somebody you say hi to at the gym. That doesn't mean you're going to go on a goals holiday with them. So is this indicative of both sort of polarities overreaching, being overreaching for intimacy on some level, wanting to be accepted, but not ever being able to get there because you don't know yourself well enough or you don't love yourself well enough? So it's sort of just this, um, it's sort of this catch 22 that keeps missing, but it's actually a desperate attempt for intimacy. Yes. It's a desperate attempt for intimacy. And a lot of our trauma responses are an effort to control and navigate love itself. So the narcissist and the codependent are two very lonely children. They're still children. You can't grow up as a codependent. You're still a kid. So they'll reach out for anybody and they'll, when they reach out, they grasp. It's a very grasping, both, both styles have this, this style. It's very, very grasping. People mm -hmm. will say, Oh no, no, I'm avoidant or I'm counter dependent. You're only avoidant or counter dependent because your primary style is grasping and you got hurt because it's an extremely painful thing to do with people. You don't know. It's just not safe. It's not safe. So yeah, we have to fight to individuate, to come back to life as a human being so that we can authentically show up and know what intimacy is. Codependence and narcissists shouldn't even use the word intimacy. None of us know what it is. None of us know what it is. And as culture becomes more narcissistic and codependence and codependent, intimacy itself is now dying, which is evident through multiple modalities. What is the, what is the fastest or best path to 
truly understanding intimacy bravery courage you know you have to it hurts if you've been asleep your whole life we show up as the weakest of the weak a scarecrow um don't attack me leave me be uh, you can attack this false image of me and it doesn't really hurt me because that's not really me so i'll never be me so you can't hurt me that's a child's response that's not an adult's response to show up as us yeah it takes a lot of courage it takes you know frankly the old classic therapeutic work you've got to figure out what you're scared of you've got to figure out what you're not asking for you have to learn new skills from, from atrophied muscles that you've never walked on that you've never used before like asking for what you want and being open and humble enough to hear the word no codependents do acrobatics and cartwheels at a master level just to never <laughs> hear the word no that's not an acceptable <laughs> way for adults to communicate and still talk about authenticity and intimacy. We have to be vulnerable to be intimate and you're vulnerable mm -hmm. to being rejected. Oh, good. No, you know, what would happen then if I was rejected? Well, you'll survive. You know, you take your knocks and you just, you just crack on. It's okay. The first one will really suck. The second one mm -hmm. is not so bad and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's a more it's a more robust and a resilient way of of living of living life. So what is it that we're talking about the steps to knowing yourself and being able to create this relationship with the self first and 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 then be able to achieve the intimacy because essentially you develop that within yourself um to really know who you are. This is probably not going to be heard by narcissists, right? So and they're probably not going to have enough self-awareness to even know that it's something that they need to address. I really don't understand that. I don't understand why there's no cure. I don't understand what the dissonance is that they have within them that doesn't allow them to heal. I mean, it seems like the best of the narcissists are the ones that are like, look, they're out there in the world kind of being narcissistic by going, by using their plot, by using their disordered sort of thinking and way of living to help people. Right. But they're like, I can't be cured. I still slip up, you know, like why is it that they can't see and change? Like why? They see perfectly. Why should they change? Why should they change? So <laughs> this, this is, this is the philosophical part of, of the therapeutic process. Like I love this part, but let's think about this. It's working. They're right. They're right. It's working just fine for them. And it may as well be to them like ancient Greeks. They don't know what we mean, intimacy and vulnerability. What are these vague notions? I've never felt feelings. I don't, I felt rage. I felt lust. I felt envy. No, but intimacy. Can I eat it? Can I have sex with it? I'm not, can I wear it as a Gucci handbag? No, I'm not. Intimacy, you can keep it. <laughs> They're fine. They have no interest in changing. Therapy is nothing but an opportunity for them to flex their muscles and stretch their claws and practice what they do. They charm the pants off therapists. Say, this is the <sighs> best therapy. You're so good. I've never, so seen, never had so many revelations. Because there's, there's a never-ending supply of people. Yeah. There's a never-ending supply of people. So since their abuse goes on the outside to protect them... And essentially on the other side of the coin, the 
the codependent is hurting themselves over and over again, they can't escape themselves. So you actually end up reaching a breaking point, unlike a narcissist who just moves on to the next people, which is why you see them have new friends all the time. And they have to keep turning this sort of system over and over and over because they eat them up, right? Like they can eat that Gucci handbag people. Like they can eat them up over and over and over again. Is that why? That's it. If it works, if it's the classic grandiose narcissist. Now, if it fails and they're the vulnerable narcissist, so the classic grandiose narcissist thinks they're amazing and largely they get the world to agree. The vulnerable or fragile narcissist thinks they're amazing and largely they can't get the world to agree. But yeah, if they can, if they can, if they can do it, they don't care. They won't miss you. They won't miss you because they don't know you. They don't know who the hell you are. There's, there's only an internalized representation of you drawn in 2D and crayon by a four-year-old child of you. You will have the experience when you're with them. This person knows me better than my mother, than my father, than God himself. They haven't got a clue who you are. Not a clue. Did, all they're doing how did is they mirroring. Tell you, how did they love bomb the shit out of you to tell you all the things that needed to be heard to buy in? Because we're open books and we don't know it. We think we're so complicated and so complex and it's written all over our silly little faces. And they ask questions too. Like, what is it that I should never do to make sure that this lasts? All you do is tell them the keys to the kingdom of pain. Yes, yes. Anything you say can and will be used against you as ammunition and torture later on. It's so true. Okay. Let's talk a little bit of like that cycle. Like, I don't know if people are hanging in there. I'm sure that they, they probably know this, but like explain this cycle of a narcissist to someone who might not understand. Yeah. They find you and they idealize you. Then you're drawn into a sort of a covert contract with them through some sort of bait. Now then the bait will either be money or fame or love or, um access to something it's pretty demonic you know there's a lot of like deals with the devil sort of thing like contracts and all that that goes on once they've got you you enter into a shared fantasy space with them this was i this the shared fantasy was identified by a psychotherapist called sander in 1989 all of us have a shared fantasy when we're in relationships it's perfectly normal um but the narcissistic shared fantasy is a, a very dark one so the shared fantasy that you're then trapped in sort of functions like the matrix, you then submerge into a simulated reality. So Mm. life with a narcissist has a very unique flavor because it's not real. It's a kind of flight of fancy, a folie à deux, that the two of you have created. You sort of idealize each other, but particularly they idealize you in the love bombing phase, and then you're trapped in a virtual reality simulator of their design. So you will actually genuinely feel better about yourself, you think, but what you're consuming is narcissistic supply, not genuine self-love. So then, sadly, dear viewers, we become addicted to narcissistic supply. And in this way, we become micro-narcissists. It's it's an infection. You have to become emotionally literate. You must connect with your emotions again. So one of the classic things I get in coaching with people is um, they'll sort of cry and they'll go, I already did the work. I went to therapy for 10 years. And I'll always say, but if you didn't learn to access 
and make friends with your emotions again, all of that therapy was for nothing. You must become emotionally literate. You can't live life as an emotional literate. It's not going to work. Your emotions are part of you as much as your hands and your feet are. You cannot deny the existence of your hands and live healthily, nor can you deny the existence of your emotions. So where your real self is, is where your feelings are. And not saying mm. become blindly submissive to emotion. Never. We should always use reason first. But how you actually authentically feel about pineapple on pizza is who you are. Mm. I'm really glad you said that because the, yeah, because, you know, your, your emotions are not something that you're oh, like, especially if you're more codependent, you have created a relationship with and they are essentially the root of boundaries then is to know yourself, to know how you feel. So you don't, well, you're, you're not even actively abandoning them before that. You're just, that's just your pattern. So like being able to tap into that is um, definitely a navigation tool out. How was it when you interviewed Sam? Um, how do you pronounce his last name? Vaknin? Sam Vaknin, yes. I like saw that a long while back and I was like, man, what would that be like knowingly sitting with such an such a narcissist and he's like out there he's one of those guys that's like a, a self-aware narcissist but still a narcissist does that feel weird do you feel like you're always like getting set up or something um sam interpersonally is, pr is pretty polite to be honest with you uh m most of the time so it's 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 okay um for me as a business person and as a professional to do that but i don't recommend that anybody else engage in contact with him it's it's very dangerous he's a he is openly as you just said he admittedly a very very sick man so people people really should bear that in mind at all times and 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 really keep a keep a distance from him you really have to know what you're doing to be in contact with a, with a man like that speaking of contact then there's the guy uh tutor he wrote the book no contact H.G. Tudor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And he is totally like, I mean, he I, I think he even says that his sort of activism around narcissism is being a narcissist. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, it's 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 interesting, like um, the people who are online who are, who are coming at it from that point of view. But what my uh, like followers and viewers and clients will say is they get a lot from that. They like to hear from people who've been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder because it gives them direct insight into, into the way those people think. What do you like philosophizing about? Let me ask that first. Well, I'll tell you what I like philosophizing about, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer it in a way that would be useful to your viewers if they've been in a narcissistically abusive relationship. Okay. Moral philosophy is very important. If you're in an abusive relationship and you're looking to get out and then you're looking to recover, you have to have a very substantial conversation with yourself with your pastor with uh, a therapist or somebody about your moral philosophy and you really need to figure out we all do whether you're a codependent or not because our cultures become incredibly morally relativistic which is very dangerous for everyone you really have to figure out for you as an individual what is right and what is wrong and i don't think there are answers i don't like rigid dogmatic answers i like asking the question mm -hmm. I like to be skilled at asking and wrestling with that question. Like, when is it context specific? If it's wrong in this culture, is it right in another? So on and so forth. But I like to have that. That's where I start 
all the what is the meaning of life why are we here is this a simulation are narcissists all archons what's going on oh my god well the first thing i was going to ask was about archetypes because i thought that'd be such an interesting sort of slight slanted direction to go is like the archetype of the but i changed my question i want to know what you how you define morality because you said earlier when we were talking we should talk about that so let's philosophize about morality but let's start off with what is that what is it to you what is your definition of morality um largely speaking i i think it's that simple dichotomy of of good versus evil i think a, a human being needs to have a sense of this person or this situation might be attractive but it's evil so i'm not going to do it and i was raised uh christian so for me it's uh, that's where there is a religious element there's a spiritual element that comes into it and i often think of the seven deadly sins you know there's sin there's sloth there's rage there's lust what's the temptation here and is this wrong now if it seems to be like it's going to be really fun or really pleasurable or it's going to give me some pay off in the material realm of the of the of the flesh like it's mm. going to make me famous it's going to make me rich there's going to be some pleasure there there's going to be some payoff there um but i know that it's morally wrong am i going to do it or not now if i have a strong moral code in my body somatically i won't be able to do it it's not a question of mm. me going i really want to but i'm not going to my body will reject it if i have a strong moral code if i have a weak moral code it's going to become a wrestling match between the angel and the devil. <laughs> what creates that code? What creates the moral code? Because, you know, you could be in one culture where dog fighting is a totally normal thing and they see nothing wrong with it. And then you go to another culture and there are pets and we would never do that. So do you think that it's the culture that you grow up in that creates that moral code? which means that they're all different depending, you know, there's no one code or do you believe that there is sort of like an inner guidance system that operates the emotional body that gives you a, a somatic reaction to something where you're, where in that scenario, let's say someone could kind of have that physical reaction somatically to the dog fight, but they, you know, it's just kind of in their culture and they have to deal with it. So do you think that there is essentially a code that comes through you or is it totally defined by your culture? I think that when you say the word code, that's human. So the humans are creating the code, but the instinct is outside of us and um mm. i don't i don't have problems with these moral questions anymore dog fighting is evil and you're a piece of crap if you do that anywhere in the world you're just a bad human and you you should be made to fight with a dog i agree so i don't I, and, and <laughs> as i've aged i've become much more set on these things um genital uh, the genital mutilation of children is acceptable in some cultures and unacceptable in others so for example what happens in america is all men get circumcised there's no reason for that there's no medical justification for that female and male genital mutilation of children is wrong i don't believe razor blades belong anywhere near children's genitals no i condemn it openly and vocally i would just condemn it and say no it's barbaric it's totally unnecessary it serves no medical purpose we shouldn't be doing it it must stop 
and on and on and on with these issues they 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 fall there are some issues that i'm still not sure about um but generally speaking for me it's pretty clear and it's this is not from christianity this came from me uh, i'll be honest with you as we're at this point in the conversation taking psychedelics in my teens but then hanging out in a, ch- in a churchyard <laughs> if it's life affir- <laughs> if it's life affirming then it's good if it's life negating then it's bad generally so and that was like taking visions of what we thought was good or bad throughout history if you if a part of your body got bitten by a snake and started to rot you'd be like damn that's bad if you feel sexual pleasure you're if you're attracted to somebody and then you have sex with them and you experience sexual pleasure and then you're blessed with a child i would think that you would if you're a primitive person you would probably think hey that was good like god must think this is there wasn't any part of this that wasn't rewarding so this must be good if it's life affirming then generally speaking good if it's life negating then bad that's that's how i and then you said code so everything starts there for me and then it's encoded down from there i'm open though i don't like to be rigid and and too dogmatic but i think we do have to have i loathe moral relativism i think it's so cowardly i think it's really cowardly what is it that prevents us from having a connection with our emotions so that we can be connected to that to accurate morality from a macro perspective? What is what is creating the disconnection or making it more difficult for us to know? Satan. <laughs> so, okay, okay. So is that like, you know, my personal belief is, is that heaven and hell is right here. It's right right here. You want whatever it's the state that you live in. So I'm going to go, okay. You say Satan, that means essentially being in hell mentally to some degree. No. Yes. Um, Yes. And I'm only being, I'm only being half ironic. So Satan in in the ancient Jewish tradition, um, that meant the, opposition the opponent the enemy so that was that which opposed in my and now and now i freestyle the life affirming things he also uh some scholars say the word meant the opposition in a legal case so satan was actually an old ancient jewish solicitor uh sorry a lawyer you say in america you don't say solicitor that means something else we say solicitor a lawyer a lawyer so he's my He's my philosophical and and legal and moral opponent in a certain sense. He's the one who's going to say, "Why don't you do that?" And if you look, if you look that now we're a little bit of Christianity. You look at the Book of Job. God and Satan were not hostile to each other. Satan flew up in the Book of Job. I'm not making this up. It's there in the Bible. He flew up to go see God and to challenge him. They were homies. Like God was like, he placed a bet with God. That which was life affirming in Job's life. Job had, by the standards of the day, like what was good. Oh, he had all this cattle and a huge farm and many children, and so that was good. And uh, Satan took all that away from him. And did his love, did it? Did his love and devotion for God die or not? That was the question. So, so when I say Satan, or or I'm in a Muslim country now, and I've lived in Muslim countries before, they say Shaitan, and it's the same role. It's the, it's that which opposes your goodness. We know that there is a disciplined, structured, moral path to goodness, 
that fights against that animalistic nature, but Satan gets in the way. So our depictions in the West would often cross over with the god Pan, this cloven hoofed, you know, dude with a horse. That's Pan. It's because they mm -hmm. couldn't, they couldn't, the Christian church was struggling to get the bloody villages to let go of Pan. They're like, no, we really like Pan. Can't we have Jesus and Pan? They're like, no, 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 no. He's the worst thing ever. But Pan was earthly. He was of the flesh. He was, he was, he was very sexual. And uh, he was a god of uh, fecundity and of the of the harvest, and and the Christian Church had to get to get rid of that because they were worried it would make people behave in a way that was base, that would draw them back into evil. So where's where was their definition of good and evil? You know, was it the flesh versus the spiritual or or whatever? But I don't have answers. I just think it's good for us all as human beings to consciously wrestle with these questions instead of watching the Kardashians. Brain cells just dying off. <laughs> um, you reference a lot of mythological and religious um, stories. I'm curious what your perspective is on religion in general. I think that we are religious creatures. Now, we don't have to go back in time. We don't have to take on the old religions, but we are dying right now without religion. Our, our culture, our civilization is not expanding. We're not progressing. Everybody will tell you that we are because... Our smartphones are great, but we're dying. We're we're we're, we're not. Explain that. That that we're dying, or that we need religion. Yeah, yeah, that we're dying. If we're dying, how is that? Because you know, on the counter side, I'd say that there's a there's an expansion of consciousness to some degree too, and a and um, some awarenesses that are coming more into mainstream mainstream culture that are progressive that you know maybe you couldn't have a conversation with someone about 10 years ago but they're like oh, okay so what is it that's dying that we need the will to live is dying the strength to live the courage to live we're having conversations and arguments about things that we shouldn't even be talking about we shouldn't we shouldn't even countenance the possibility of, of uh it, no civilized country should even have to take it to court whether children will be physically mutilated and transitioned to change their sex. That's the sign to me of a civilization that's that's dying. Um, th there is no way that anybody, the most radical person in the 1960s in the United Kingdom or America, these are the only two countries I can talk about with, with conviction and confidence, nobody would have so there talk about it it's uh, happening to a guy i know a guy called jeff younger um who's a deeply religious man who his wife is trying to get his son to transition his son is uh i don't know how old his son would be now but he's certainly under the age of 15 he's under the age of sexual consent but apparently not under the age of consenting to have his genitals permanently removed that is a civilization that's dying and that by the way folks is happening in texas of all yeah. states that's happening in texas it's mind-blowing to me it's it's really bad yes you're right there is progress um the extent of evil that we see in the world now provokes the conversation and it provokes a pushback yeah. in, a, in a culture that had otherwise got a bit flabby we'd all gotten a bit comfy because up until 2012 there was nothing really that much for us to there wasn't a proper culture war the culture wars from 2012 2013 onwards they really really set off and it's getting very very passionate now why 
because we don't, I think we've lost our sense of ourselves. We don't have a sense that we are good creatures living a good life, however imperfectly. Now there's a growing sense of we are bad creatures destroying the earth. We must be killed. Um, and that might, when I say it like that, it might sound like hyperbole, but if you, if you translate the messages that are out there, you'll see that there's, 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 there really is something to that. It's a life negating death cult that we're in the grip of at the moment. We're talking about a civilization that's, you know, on one side going so far to saying like a three-year-old should be able to transition genders. Um, is there not an, can you make an argument for an equal and opposite side of uh, awareness of um, accountability of um, opening their eyes to things that weren't so prevalent and known and that essentially, while it does feel like the negative always feels really heavy, there's actually just as much positive. Do you believe in sort of more of that quantum perspective of equal and opposite? Well, I'll tell you something. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of a hippie really at heart. I'm not even kind of a hippie. I'm definitely a hippie. So I'm, I'm a mystical hippie. And uh, one of the things, one of the things that, that, that I believe though, even as a mystical hippie, is I have this sense that like men and women are very, very different and that that's a beautiful thing. And that that's a source of life is the polarity between men and women. Men are cynical and belligerent and pessimistic. Women are utopian and optimistic and idealistic. And so now we're having a conversation as a man and a woman where I'm saying everything is ruined and you're saying everything's <laughs> But that's good. That's life affirming. That's the way it's supposed to be. So I want to frighten the villagers into action <laughs> and you want to reassure them. And I'm saying, don't reassure them. Let them know fear. Let them take action. Don't. I don't want people to believe that other people are going to fix this for them anymore. Nobody's going to fix. There's nobody's coming to save us. We can't sit back and, and wait for the people to come. Nobody's coming. And that it's, it really is. It's, it's an existential crisis. It's not unsolvable. Good philosophy, uh, good behavior. This is Buddhism now, like right action, right thought, right word, right deed. We can regulate this bad karma that we've built up, but we have as a species built up a tremendous amount of bad karma. So at a higher level, like narcissism and codependency, yes, but really narcissism is evil. It's wrongdoing. It's it's moral injustice. You know, psychopaths, narcissists, they commit moral crimes in the world. And the job that I think that we have as people who want to see the world get better is to stop this spin of bad karma that's come down through the generations and through the centuries and say, no, it will stop with us. We won't give this job to our children. We won't give this job to our children's children. We'll do it. We'll stop the intergenerational trauma. We'll set the boundary. We'll say no. You started talking about man and woman. And one of one of the things that I watch a lot of information about, read about, curious about is sort of the masculine feminine role. And another thing that's sort of emerging more in culture is this um you know, toxic masculinity or toxic femininity or balancing the divine feminine and masculine within you. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are around that, if something's sort of peaking with you. Um, and then essentially like a very fundamental, like, should there be roles? 
Should there be gender roles? First question. That to me is a sign of, of failing. I, I met with him, what is hilariously known as the manosphere. Um, and there are a lot of guys within there who are trying to preserve masculinity. And I have said to them, I'm very open with them about this. I think that that is a redundant effort. You're going to end up trying to preserve a historical artifact. And we're all going to walk around with neck tattoos on steroids with leather jackets, trying to like make our voices sound like this and be really tough. <laughs> and it's going to be ridiculous. The way you frame the question, it kind of it kind of saddens me because you're right. There is this question about what do women do? What do men do? How should we act? How false we've become that we need to even ask that. We're, we're turning into avatars of ourselves. When young men come to me and they go, well, you seem like a masculine guy. How do I be masculine? I'm like, well, you have a penis and testicles, don't you? Like, I can't. What do you want? You know, if you want to be, if your if your sexuality is that that you're gay or you're bi or your demeanor is that you're very shy and retiring, uh, I don't see a Noel Coward as being non-masculine. I don't see you know, the the great foppish English writers of the past of being unmasculine, their masculinity was expressed in that way. I think there's a whole, you know, panoply of ways of expressing it. I don't really focus on human beings' expression of masculinity because it becomes artifice. We're very good at sending out false signals. We're, we're very good at lying as humans. I'm interested in, ma in principles, yin, yang. Uh, if you want to be a very effeminate man, go ahead. What I do for a living is very feminine. I'm in the realm of emotion dreams and archetypes i hold space for people so i'm yin for people i'm their mother in coaching i'm not their father i'm their mother in coaching so i have no problem with it women also have this issue now especially you know not to digress too much but when it comes to sexuality men and women now they're completely lost especially native from their own sexual identities now so they've no idea what to do their idea of intimacy and sex is what they saw in porn growing up and this is it's useless. It's useless. It's all performative. It's from the outside in. How do I look? Am I fulfilling my culture's ideals of what being a woman is? Just go inside out. You are a woman. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? You don't have to force yourself to be a helicopter pilot if you don't, or, or a racing car driver. If that scares you, it would scare me. Don't do it to fulfill a feminist mm -hmm agenda but if that was in your heart to be a racing car driver and you smelt that fuel and you got in that uncomfortable horrible car and you're like yay this is fucking awesome go ahead and go be an mma fighter i've trained women who are like this we're diverse as a as a species there are women who are not playing at being mma fighters or muay thai fighters they were born to fight it's in them. I know it. I, they're not playing. Sometimes we get people who are playing, but they don't last. They're not gonna. They're not gonna do the training. I don't know what training you had to do to do what you did, but I bet it was hard. And I bet it takes years. And I bet it sucks. And it's boring because <laughs> it all is right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that, that's that's what was in you. But you're a woman, so I'm like, just do <laughs> what do you want to do? You're doing it as a woman, so you know, case case closed. Is there a place for gender roles, you ask me? Again, it's a question that saddens me because it's it's outside in. It's top down. Let's stop telling people what to be. Let's stop being, you must, with, uh, with all this neurosis and this controlling as if we know what color socks we've even got on today. It's so weird. Let's just trust people to be. They're little boys and little girls. Be little boys and little girls. They're going to do it differently. 
And that's okay. Let's teach them to be good people. Let's teach them not to be narcissistic assholes who, if they grow up gay, don't abuse your boyfriend and break his heart. Try and be kind. We don't teach that. Mm -hmm. We're not interested in teaching these kids to be kind or to be righteous or to be courageous or to be strong. It's just like, let's rush to force my ideology in there as deep as I can before my opposition does. That's unacceptable and it's, it's evil. Gender roles should occur spontaneously. They shouldn't be forced top down. I was forced when I was a kid to play football and to be competitive and all that stuff. And I effing hated it. I wanted to read books. I wanted to write poetry. They should have just left me alone. They should have let me do what I wanted to do. As I grew up, I decided I love martial arts. I got into boxing spontaneously, naturally. That's what came out of me. It wasn't forced mm. into me. People are too panicky and too controlling. People who really haven't got their own lives sorted out shouldn't be telling little boys and little girls how to live. They have no right. What do you have to say about the statistics on sort of dating hierarchy and hypergamy and how the how men and women date in different directions, lateral and up for women, lateral and down for men? And, you know, this sort of like culture where we're just over it feels like we're very much over analyzing what goes together and what doesn't go together i, I really think again it's we're looking at the wrong things we're, we're being you know when somebody's when like you must know people like this like my life doesn't work and, and I, I i've just failed i know i'll control danica's actions danica what you need to do you, you listen to me why why because i'm not in control so i have to control you who cares? Like, like if you're not harming anyone, I don't, me personally, I don't care. There's, I, I'm so lazy when it comes to caring what other adults do with their time, with their bodies, like with their lives. Like people come to me like, did you hear about so-and-so? I don't, I don't care. Like if they're not hurting anyone, why don't we, why don't we take all that angst and that obsession and try and help people become more healthy? And where there are criminals, there are psychopaths and narcissists, let's go stop them. Let's go be like, hey, we've got a human trafficking problem in America. It's a huge one. In the United Kingdom, it's a terrible one. Let's focus on that for a minute rather than worrying about what men and women are doing to each other. I'm not avoiding the difficult part of your question. Here's my answer. Will women seek the resource of wealth from men? Yes. Sometimes some women, they'll be a leading that way for many, many good reasons. It's always been that way. Will men simultaneously seek the, the resource of youth and beauty in women? <gasps> yes. Why do they do that? Are men awful? Are women gold diggers? Because it helps their children survive. That's it. Fitness. Fitness. Yeah. Your, yeah. your kid's intelligence comes from the man, largely speaking, genetically speaking. Your kid's looks largely comes from the mother. You want pretty smart kids who procreate and carry on your DNA. <laughs> what are we doing? Like, why are we agonizing over this? Just let people do it. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be a fight for resources. I I, I often speak on uh, behalf of men, but there is something that, that happens in this whole issue. How do we say gold digger? But we don't have the equivalent for men for a beauty digger. Gold digging is beauty digging. It's the same thing. Mm. You're going to pursue mm. the resource of a wealthy, smart guy. I'm going to pursue the re the low resource, the, the limited, rare resource of a beautiful girl. But I'm fine if I do that. Nobody points out. Nobody's like, oh, 
Or maybe there might be like, uh, what do they call that? Like, oh, a trophy wife. That's as close as we get. That's that's a double standard. That's totally unfair. If men are going to do that, then women should get to do what they're doing. Like, what? What? I don't really personally see it as a major threat to Western civilization versus everything else we've got going on. But we do seem to spend an awful lot of time agonizing over this. You're right. I agree. I mean, I think about it a lot. You know, I think about the the hypergamy stuff and like, you know, how women that make more or are more successful or more well-known or things like that have a higher rate of divorce or unsuccessful relationships. And, you know, sometimes I think, you know, talking, the more we talk about it, the more real it is as opposed to just letting things be. But I I don't know. It's hard to ignore. Are you saying there's a trend where if a woman has more resources and is more successful, the divorce rate is is higher for women like that, is it? Mm-hmm. And just struggle in relationships, essentially. Okay. What's because po- it triggers. Would it? Would it? Would that trigger a man? I, I I cannot speak on behalf of all men as much as I would like to. Like a lot of guys, like what drinking beer and watching football, and I can't do that. So so I I don't I don't know. Um, I would think if when you say would it trigger a man what have you noticed it triggers in men is it like an insecurity thing yeah yeah like to be have i don't know dominance for control well okay i can tell you how i feel as a person rather than as a man if i knew that i was getting involved in a relationship with somebody who wanted dominance and control through any vector i wouldn't want to be in a relationship with that person anyway right well i'm trying to understand what the triggering w- is is telling me yeah what is it telling you? Do you? What's your theory for what's happening right now? What's your hypothesis philosophically? I think that that right now there's a lot of um, chaos and um, disorder and um, resolving essentially within the planet on a lot of levels. And I think one of them is healing the union of the masculine and feminine within each one of us so that we can honor the other. And it doesn't mean that we all can do everything the same. We are the same in every area. It just means that there's there will essentially lead to less triggering and more of a, of a respect, uh, a respect for, for each other. Um, and you will be able to honor each other in the ways that you stand out and you shine and you're great. And I think that it's, I think that's what's happening right now. It feels like from like a philosophical, uh, spiritual perspective is that there is a triggering, there is a conversation around this because it is being asked to be healed. Interesting. Interesting. I'd not thought of it that way. Um, and now that I'm thinking of it that way, I would agree. So there's a lot of focus on this because it's asking to be healed. You, if you were talking about yourself, do you have difficulties in relationship because you're successful and guys are intimidated by that? Uh, yeah, I would have to say yes. I, I don't I don't know what the solution is, but I'm just, it, my mind goes to, I wonder what type of person is getting upset by that. I wonder what type of human is looking at another human and saying, I really, really like this person. I'm physically attracted to them. I'm emotionally attracted to them. Psychologically, we get on really well. God, I wish I could be with them, but she just has so much money. 
and I don't want to go on expensive holidays with her. I don't want to drive a fancy car. I don't, it's really, is that what's I happening? don't think that's it. Like, I mean, I get it. When you explain the words <laughs> out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But the truth is, I think it's more like it shows, I think it, I think it shines a light on what someone is not. Sure. If they're operating. Not really my problem, not like yeah. I'm a problem, but I am a facilitator of information for themselves. Yes. You're showing them parts of themselves that they don't like. Yeah. So you're, I suggest, dealing with humans who wish that they'd done more and just didn't that's not a man who's doing what he wanted to do because even if all that man wanted to do was to have his own hand car wash like that was his effing just his dream and he had it and they haven't done what they want to do in their own lives that so that dude's going to be unhappy with you with her with him if he goes that way in the end He's just unhappy. That's just an unfulfilled human being. Nobody should be that, in my humble opinion, nobody should be that fragile without us having a conversation about the fragility itself. Like what? Like So if I had that guy in for coaching, I'd be like, what's happening, dude? Like, what, what are we doing here? How could you be so fragile in your sense of your masculinity or your sense of self? Where did you learn how to be a man? What do you think being a man is? Talk to me, tell me, explain, because something is really, really off here. At the end of the day, this is what I would say to him, you're going to be two human beings in a room. That could be a huge room in a mansion with an outdoor swimming pool, or it could be a little apartment <laughs> somewhere. What are we talking about, homeboy? You got you to explain it to me because I don't get this. We're, so we're still, we're still in the realm of like uh, the base like uh we're still low down and we're we're trying to do outside in what are my boys going to think about me if she earns more than i do you know i don't, I don't know maybe i like i i don't personally know where i'm from culturally i don't know any men who would have a problem with that so in the northwest of england where i'm from in fact in my family right now if you take the 12 couples who make up the closest people i have in my family of the 12 couples, four of them, the women are wealthier than the men and they're exceptional in medicine, in law, in different areas of their lives. The mm -hmm. men don't have a problem at all. They go and do, they love triathlons in my family. They go and run and they play squash and they, mm -hmm. they work. They're, everybody works. We're all good Irish Catholics. Everybody's got to work, but there's no problem at all. So I think you might have been going mm -hmm. through the same archetype again and again. Sure, sure, sure. I charge uh, a lot for these uh, coaching sessions. I'm just warning you, you are on the clock. You're on the clock. <laughs> well, I hope I drive a lot of people your people your direction. So. All right. Well, we could go on and on. We could philosophize forever. Um, thank you. Like truly, thank you very much. Thanks. And um, I appreciate all of the awareness that you create in uh of course the area of personality disorders, but um uh, but also this extended conversation about philosophy and morality. And um, honestly, it sounds like just like understanding your own emotions and yourself and who you are, because when you live in integrity, then you tend to live in morality and, and, and work with life in a moral sense. Yes. And that essentially would sounds like uh, sounds like a very big solution to a lot of problems 100%. by what I'm hearing. hundred percent. Definitely. Definitely. Thank, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you.
Thanks, Richard. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.